Welcome to Iteration, a weekly podcast about programming, development, and design through the lens of amazing books, chapter by chapter. We are back with another episode, talking programming, talking refactoring. We've been going through the book Refactoring by Martin Fowler, kind of chapter by chapter. And as always, I am joined by JP. Hey, JP. How's it going? It's going good. So what have you been up to this week? So yesterday, I was a product of, what's it called when you like see an ad and you immediately go and buy that thing that's in the ad? I, I <laughs> Oh, American, being American, <laughs> patriotism. So I saw this ad for this thing called, like, there's this practice called floating, which is just another form of meditation, I think, where you basically lie in a a very shallow salt bath thing and and you just float in there in like a a sensory deprivation chamber. So I did is that it, last night. Is it silent? Completely silent. And wow. and in fact, they recommend first timers put in earplugs and that sort of adds to the whole sensory deprivation experience. Kind of freaky, kind of cool. Kind of cool just being with your thoughts and being in uh being in a sensory deprived state. <laughs> so yeah, that that was my last night and I walked out of it feeling kind of refreshed and and just overall in a better mood. So do you think you'll do it again? If the opportunity arises, yes, I will say it's kind of expensive. Mm. I think the next time I do something like self self care, it'll probably be a massage. <laughs> uh, <laughs> nice. Been wanting to get one of those, but my head is clear and I feel I feel great. That was just last night, so like I don't know, 12, 12 hours ago. That's kind of cool. So a couple follow up questions to that. Uh, number one, were you naked? Yes. Wow. Okay. That sounds kind of nice. And uh, number two, was the water warm or cold? It was warm. It was just warm enough that you were comfortable. So it's not like a, oh. it's not like a jacuzzi or a hot tub where it's like too warm and you like w- will fall asleep really easily. But they, so what happens is you take a shower first, you know, wash off all the, all the hair, all the hair product you might have, cologne, makeup, sure. whatever. I think just so that you're not like distracted by scents and like stuff on your face. Mm. If you're, uh, if you're a girl, and then you just like go straight from the like the shower into this like chamber thing. And they recommend not taking too hot of a shower because then you might think the water's the temperature isn't like too cold. cold like the relative difference. Yeah. But when you get in there, it's you're completely it's like a really good temperature. <laughs> it was great. That's super cool. So what about work this week as far as code? What kind of things you've been working on? Oh man. You know, we're just working just still working on the mobile app. I think we have uh, we just have some cool stuff coming down the pipeline for for this open door app. Probably can't be talking about it too much, but just just overall improvements to the buyer experience side of the app because that's super cool. Yeah. So you're you're shipping new features now because before you were on this train of merging a lot of features from both apps because of the acquisition, and so it seems like now you've kind of pivoted to a new phase where you're able to start deploying new features. Would that be right? Yes. So I think second half of this quarter. We're going to be focusing on following up on some of the things that we've been working on, which does include like new features and Mm, and new overall better experiences. Our goal, I hate, I hate saying this, but our goal is to make the app feel more magical, which is like a a cop out way of saying it. The UX is so good that the user doesn't think about it. (laughs) 
No, I, there is that that amazing place where an app just works so freaking well that it's like, oh my God, that was so easy. And it, it happens so few and far between. I almost feel like so many times with a user experience, I'm fighting to get what I'm looking for as a user. Like I'm trying to solve this puzzle to get the thing out of the other end that I'm hoping to accomplish. It's really cool when there is those experiences that are just so slick that they just work so well. But like I, I booked a ho- some hotels recently. I used like booking.com and literally it was like solving the puzzle of booking the hotel room. <laughs> like it's it's so complex and, and overbearing and ridiculous. But that's really exciting that you have the opportunity to ship some new features into the app. That's cool. That's long overdue to be able to start working on some like totally new stuff. I have a weird follow up question from an episode we had like 10 episodes ago, which was you guys as an organization, I think this is okay to say, you transitioned from using RESTful API over to using GraphQL. And at the time, it was a little bit of a painful transition just because of timing things. You're trying to push some things out the door. I'm wondering overall what working on GraphQL versus REST has been like and how that transition has gone now that it's a few months past. I was wondering this the other day. Yeah, so I actually think GraphQL is great. Um, I think I think at the time it was just, it was more of a holy crap, everything is happening at once and we need to ship this mm. thing. Yeah. And you do have like time to read the docs, but you don't really have time to digest everything. You don't have time to digest everything you're ingesting. And it was just so painful because you have to you have to like write code and you also have to learn a new thing, which is always really hard to do. Um, especially mm. when they're all when it's especially when it's not just like some toy app that you're you're you know, you're pushing to GitHub and and, the, and it's never seeing the day, the light of day. Yeah. But now that I've been working with GraphQL for four, four months now, I, I think I think it's a cool tool. To be honest with you, a lot of that is like already stabilized and, and a lot of the things we need to do, like the setup, all the painful stuff is already done. Yeah. And so now I'm mostly just consuming it. And I, I think that the bridge that's provided. So the libraries that people have written that bridge like GraphQL and React Native are really good. And so you don't really have to think about making a REST call in some component and and hitting some endpoint. It's just all sort of nicely baked in into these into these libraries that make consuming GraphQL endpoints really, really nice. It feels like like the the way that you do it feels like, oh, I'm doing the right thing or I'm feeling I'm I'm doing it in some way that is it's supposed to be done. Whereas in the past, um, I know you've probably been exposed to like Axios, which makes HTTP requests in in like JavaScript components. And sometimes that can feel like not really hacky, but it's like, am I doing this right? Or like, Mm -hmm. should I be doing it in in this lifecycle method? Like, where should I be doing this? Especially when I'm like calling to multiple endpoints, like putting to two places, then pulling from a third, like, and it's all in one JavaScript file. And it just gets a lot trying to make sure all the JavaScript fires and that they come back successful. So I feel like that's a lot of the the work involved is just dealing with state across those different, like, am I putting, am I pulling? What does that look like? And from what I know of GraphQL, especially in that context, from what I've heard is just like, it's almost like magical that the state is just always perfectly represented. Of course, you have to think about it and use it. But to some degree, like there's just this magic component that just the data problem of where the state is and where it is, is just kind of solved. And that sounds really incredible. Yeah, it's a good tool. Um, would I use it on a personal project? To be honest with you, I'm still very comfortable with with Axios and and or mm-hmm. just regular HTTP. 
Yeah. Just making HTTP calls. It is like definitely another layer of abstraction that you need to think about on top of like your domain, I guess. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, just use the tools that you feel are right, but... Yeah, and it's interesting. I, and I like I've looked into a little bit of doing GraphQL on Rails just because I know that it would make the front end more productive. And we have a couple different front end developers. And also like the project moves from developer to developer pretty often. Unfortunately, we've moved around a lot. And so I feel like having a consistent, well-documented API is great. But GraphQL takes that a step further because they don't have to continuously like request a change to the REST API or update that because it's two different teams. But, you know, I looked into doing like GraphQL on Rails and there's a ton of great docs on it and a ton of great stuff, but it almost feels like you're you're building your API twice, at least in the context of Rails. Like you have to first build out all your controllers in Rails anyway, and then you put like GraphQL on top of it, kind of the implementations I've seen at least. So it's really interesting and I want to keep exploring it more. And I have an upcoming Greenfield project that's really big and we are going to be a splintered team, front end and back end. And I'm wondering like from the start, something like that, knowing we're going to have so many different consumers of this data, maybe it's a good approach to just start day one in the GraphQL world versus trying to go the rest world. So that's why I asked what your opinion was and trying to do my own research and build a toy app soon. So cool. Thanks for your thoughts on that. So after all of that digression, I promise we'll actually get through the chapter this week. So this week we are on chapter, not chapter seven. That doesn't seem right. Uh... This book is structured in such a way that doesn't really afford for us to to do like a chapter <laughs> to, by to chapter, chapter names. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. So we're like halfway through the book, let's say a little bit further than that. And this is one of those episodes where we're going to be talking through some specific refactors. So we're going to grab from this big list of great refactors, some of our favorite refactors, talk through context, we've used them, kind of some tips and tricks around those refactors. So to kick us off, we've got first uh, JP with Encapsulate Record. Walk us through this one, JP. What is this refactor? Why is it one of your favorites you picked here? Okay, so I chose a couple refactors from chapter seven. We're kind of bouncing around back and forth, and I think that's okay. But the the main theme of chapter seven is encapsulation. And so that is sort of what these refactors are going to be centered around. And the ones that I picked, I, I should preface this with I've never like used used these techniques, nor have I ever thought of them. And I thought they they potentially will be good points of discussion. Want to get some of your thoughts on on these things? So the first for the first one, without further ado, it's called encapsulate record. And basically, what it is is sometimes you'll have a JavaScript object or a hash or a dictionary and it might contain some amount of data. So for this example, we have something like a variable that's called organization and it holds two things. It holds a name and it holds a country. So let's say the name is myself, JP, and the country is USA, right? And so you might have this organization that is an object that's being passed around through multiple things. So like, let's say you pass the organization to a couple methods, you pass it through a couple functions, you pass it through like a class and the class does something with that. So the idea of of this is to not store it in just like a variable called organization and instead to create a class called organization. So the benefits of this are that now you can sort of hide the data and you could provide methods to access things like the name or the country. So you would have getters and setters that set the name and set the country and now the consumer of this idea of an organization doesn't need to know or care what's stored on it. 
because let's say some of these values might be derived. And so I thought this was a very interesting way of, of taking that next step of, you know, like, let's say you start small and say like, okay, I need some, some data structure. I need, I need some data structure. So I'm going to start with a variable. And then this is like taking it the next step and saying, okay, I could actually turn this variable into a class because let's say you're starting to do things like, oh, I'm going to pass this variable to a function and it's going to parse the name and, and, and turn it into like a first name and a last name. And then it's going to spit those out when I return, mm. um, when I return something. Instead, this is saying like, okay, once we've done enough of that and we've been passing around this piece of data, right. we can instead just like say like, okay, instead let's create a class and provide methods that do these things. Yeah, this would serve me well in JavaScript. This is not something I do currently when I'm doing vanilla JS or different JavaScript implementations. I definitely, I, I all of my JavaScript files have that big array at the top or like object at the top. That's that kind of like JSON notation of what I'm interacting with for that file. That's really interesting. This approach seems like really good for a lot of reasons because I've had those pain points of needing to either modify the source data or use it in different ways. And this gives a really clean abstraction and best practice to do that. Where would you think the breakpoint though is in wanting to encapsulate a record like this? So for you, when do you reach this tool? Is it something where it's like, oh, more than three or four attributes, more than five or six records? Like at what point does it feel like it feels right to start encapsulating it in this way. Yeah. So the question is like, when do I go from like having a variable that has, that holds a bunch of data to a class? Yeah. And I think when it just becomes painful, right? Because like <laughs> you can, you can get away yeah. with just passing around this like variable that holds like a name and a date and a country and, you know, some other information. But I think, I think the big thing is that like, if, if the data that you have being stored in in some hash or some object is already like very closely related and you're doing stuff with that data other than i don't know reading it then i think it might it might serve you to like then put it into a class where you're like okay i need to like do more than just read this data i need to like derive some values from it and i need to like change some of these values then I think at that point, it's like, okay, well, maybe this this will be good as a class and, and not just a regular hash. Right, not just regular hash. That makes a ton of sense. Cool. We have a similar one. The next one up here is encapsulate collection, which is really similar in a lot of ways to encapsulate record as far as I can tell. And like and on first look, I'm not even seeing what the difference is here. So walk me through what the difference between encapsulate record versus encapsulate collection and like when you'd use that. Okay, so the second one I have here is called encapsulate collection. And really what the difference is is that a lot okay, so okay, so let me let me take a step back and 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 give like the motivation behind why you might do something like this. And the motivation is basically like you don't want to mutate your data. So like when you're passing around an array, for example, you don't want to be doing things to it like pushing to it or popping from it or Whatever it's called when you when you pop the first item, shifting in in Ruby <laughs> yeah, land, slicing, um, yeah. shifting, or whatever. <laughs> so basically, what the idea of encapsulate collection is is to you encapsulate the, the your data structure into a class, and and you provide methods that will return basically a clone of that. So like instead of like grabbing the actual data, you you return a clone of that. Or like, for example, let's say you want to do a thing where you grab the first item. You would provide methods that that just return the first item without mutating it versus like 
actually taking the first item off and then leaving modifying your original yeah, yeah and then and then modifying your source sorry i think the i think the examples i have in our notes are a little convoluted but no now that you say that it makes yeah. perfect sense it's funny because the name is so similar to the previous thing we talked about encapsulate record versus encapsulate collection but in practice they're very different things in in a way so Whereas the first one was all about kind of organization and strategy about this, this clean interface versus a hash. Now let's, so let's encapsulate this into this, its own thing. This is more about, even though you do get those other benefits from moving it from this standard array into this object, you do get some of those other benefits of organization and clarity and separation of concerns. But one of the biggest ones is that we aren't modifying our original source, which is this non-destructive change, if you will. It's funny. So like, this is an idea though, that I feel like extends beyond just a collection of objects, like modifying an array. This is one that I fuck up all the time. I feel like where I'm working in JavaScript and I'm like doing something with an array. And then, you know, halfway down my page, passing around this array, I realize like, oh, I've now modified this array and I've removed the key that I needed because of my previous function. So I have to go back and modify these other functions to go get back that key that I had originally in the hash or in the array or the collection of some kind. And so I love this idea about encapsulating that collection, basically like making a photocopy of it before you modifying it. It reminds me of like way back in my previous life, me and my brother owned a recording studio and our original editing setup, like to edit music was a standard editing setup. So it was like way back in the day, like in the early 2000s, you didn't have this idea of what's called non-destructive audio editing, where all the new audio editing stuff, basically like every action you do when editing music, it never ever modifies the original recording you made. It's always only editing a clone of it. So no matter what you do and how much you chop up a song, you can always go back to its source, this idea of like non-destructive editing. And I think... JavaScript has done this well. In general, the community moves toward this more functional approach. And it's something that's a little bit mind bending for me is someone who's been like born and raised in the Rails and Ruby community where we're just passing around and changing variables willy nilly. And like, it's not something that's sacred, like the actual source data is not something we think of as sacred in general in our community in that way. Of course, my database is, and I'm not going to do anything destructive to my database, but in line in memory, like we just willy nilly change variables. So this idea of encapsulating this collection into a clone is really powerful. And I think in other ways, not just a collection, but it could be an object, it could be, uh, you know, whatever hash you're using, kind of encapsulating that and thinking about a way to be non-destructive and taking that more functional approach. There's so much in it that that's a benefit. And then on top of that, by creating this object out of this, like you get that idea of also be able to add other methods to it, extend it in other ways, and it just encapsulates. So that makes a ton of sense. Yeah, I love that callback to your previous life because <laughs> it, it reminds me of back in my day when I used to be a designer, there was like no way to safely edit photos in Photoshop other than like duplicating your original layer and then working off of that <laughs> instead. And so I would be constantly doing that after getting burned or like I would like group things together into folders and then I would like make a duplicate of that group before I would like merge like merge layers together. 100%. I remember that in Photoshop and you'd have like 85 layers and or also like 25 different Photoshop files that yeah. would be like final, 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 yeah. final, final, <laughs> R1, R2. Yeah. What's so weird, I feel like in design, I've been doing a lot of UX stuff in Sketch lately and there's no version control and there is no concept of non-destructive editing. And I know that like a lot of people are trying to solve this 
with like a git for design, but it's a really hard problem to solve that's really unsolved, which is total random digression. But it's it's really true. I feel like we take for granted sometimes as developers this amazing tooling that we have of like ed- editing in general, meaning like we always have change history. If you're git committing often, like you never have to worry. You can just always re- return a specific state or take one change. It's so fantastic. Yeah. Cool. All right. So this next concept we have here, I'm going to give one of mine before going back to one of yours. Cool. So I'm going to go back to one of mine, which here is this tip that I have that is extract class. And so this is a really big topic in general. It's something I talk through a lot, but I want to give a specific example, something in Ruby that I had pretty recently, which was I, I had this huge model called an applicant model. So like that's when someone was applying for something and it stored all types of data against a single database table. So it was storing health history, habits, lifestyle, like some information about legal release and like all kinds of data. So not only was I storing all this in a single database table, which is like whatever, that's probably fine. So I had a lot of columns on this thing, like tons and tons of columns. So that's like problem kind of a problem one. But then the bigger problem is my controllers and my models and my views were an absolute clusterfuck because I was accessing so many different parts of a single object all through a single model. And I didn't break up this interface into different things. So I think extracting that class into all these different things. So basically we broke up this applicant into an applicant health history, applicant habits, applicant lifestyle, applicant, like all these different smaller classes were broken up. And so now we can interact with them in a way that makes so much more sense and get our head around them from a, even from a user experience standpoint, but even more importantly, from like a a model standpoint and a controller standpoint, interacting with these things was so, so much cleaner and so much easier to use and reuse across different places. Another quick example, I've been doing a lot of JavaScript e-commerce stuff, like these really custom front ends in JavaScript, and it's been a lot of fun. It's really challenging. Um, but one thing that I did recently is I extracted a class for like a cart So all of the cart functionality of like add to cart, update cart, remove from cart, I extracted all that into a single class. And then I was able to reuse that in a bunch of places because in this different front end logic across these different like custom product pages that were all written in JavaScript, there was all this cart logic. And I realized that this was all shared logic and I was able to all combine this into a single class that and just extract that into cart, include that file at the top and boom, good to go. And so there's just this like concept of extracting a class, like just goes on and on and on from front end to back end of how much benefit that has and how that impacts code overall. Cool. Okay. I have a follow-up question for you for, for our Rails listeners out there. And I want to know how you namespaced all of your child objects for this like huge applicant class because now you have these other classes called uh, i'm assuming they were pre- like um they started with like applicant as like yep. the the first part of the class yeah applicant uh, habits applicant lifestyle applicant yeah yeah so did you have like um a folder a subfolder for all this stuff or was yes. they, did they, so was it co-located with applicant no no so that's the other huge win you get at least in the context of rails and i'm sure you could organize things this way in other projects but essentially in our models views and controllers we went from having a single applicant folder with all these different views in it to actually a hierarchy of the data, even represented through our folder structure on the back end, which just like makes everything so much more clear from a documentation standpoint, because it's so much more clear what's going on. So 
I mean, the how-to in Rails, there's a book called um, Growing Rails that's fantastic that I would strongly recommend for this type of namespacing and kind of getting your head around a big application. So I've used a lot from that book in kind of breaking things up in, in really good ways. But there's this concept of modules and namespacing in Rails. So basically, we have this module of applicant, which is literally like a capital A applicant and then colon, colon, and then what it is. So applicant, colon, colon, lifestyles. So that is like the actual name of it. So we have an applicant colon, colon, lifestyles controller. And there's, so there's all these different, actually that wouldn't be on the controller, that'd be on the model. So it's applicant, colon, colon, lifestyle. And then in the controller, would be applicant lifestyle controller. And it's named as such and actually put into the folder structure. So then we have a lifestyle controller within an applicant's folder within my controller's folder. Um, and the Rails namespacing just takes care of all of that, which is really, really helpful. It's kind of not well documented on the Rails stuff. I feel like a lot of what Rails has on their official docs on their site is very much tailored toward kind of smaller applications and beginners, which is great. But it's something that as you dig deeper into the official docs and some other places, you can start to find like how other organizations in these really big monoliths apps have started breaking things up. Because if you just follow out of the box convention, like routes and controllers, like you'll end up with a controllers folder that's just literally one folder that's just full of like dozens and dozens and dozens of controllers. Where now when I open up my controllers folder in this project, I have subfolders. I have like 12 subfolders and only like three actual controllers in the root controllers file. And we actually now are doing like double namespacing even. So it'll be like, you know, controllers, users, tasks. And so that'll be, they'll actually be namespace within a module, within a module. And it just makes it super clean to understand kind of the, the scope of a specific bound of the application and how far things, and we have the tests done in the same way. So if you're like only working on users tasks, you can just run that test folder and it, it just makes it so nice to work in. And it just, the whole thing, it provides such a clear path of hierarchy and order. Cool. Final question is, did you yeah. have to do anything with setup? to make all this rails magic happen or does like rails out of the box already know how to how to read like something deep within like a a, a nested namespace folder yeah, great question. No, there's no specific setup you need. Like this is no extra magic or gem or tooling on top of Rails. This is all out of the box Rails. You could name it this way and it would work. But it's not really a testament to Rails. It's more a testament to Ruby because of the power of Ruby modules. And if like really all it is is Ruby modules, that's all this is utilizing to be able to make all that magic happen. There is some Rails magic that's happening in the routes and controllers files specifically. But in the models, like you could just do this with Ruby. You wouldn't need any Rails tooling included at all to do this kind of like really smart namespacing and kind of separation of concerns by extracting those classes. But there is some Rails magic involved in the routing and in the way that the controllers are looking for it. The one really big pain point is forms. If you're using like form templates, like passing in sub items and module namespace names, it just gets to be a total pain in the ass with like the URL for in a form object. So we find ourselves like oftentimes having to fight that a little bit and using like global form URL, not global variables, but like we use variables that are passed into the partials that actually tell what the URL should be in that context. So that's the only pain point that's not very well documented and well handled. Um, but beyond that, it's been really a great solution to get our head because this is just a huge application as it's grown. Um, you know, we've got 
just dozens of models and dozens and dozens of controllers. So it's really, really good to try to start namespacing and scoping things down. And this idea of extract class is just absolutely essential to stay sane. Cool. So, so far, I feel like extract class and encapsulate record are, they kind of go well together. It's it's totally, the, the idea is basically, Hey, when, when, when your data structure is painful and you have data that is related to each other, maybe, maybe bring that into its own class, whether you're in JavaScript or you're in Ruby or you're in Python or Go, I don't know, whatever, just, you know, whatever object oriented language <laughs> suits your needs, extract that baby into a class. Yeah, absolutely. So I've got one here that I've been actually reaching for more and more, which is inline function. So the idea here is instead of having a specific function that does something, it's just putting whatever that function is doing within the other function. So that is probably doesn't make sense on audio. But essentially, like I have an example here of it's actually from code I was working on for this e-commerce thing. So this idea of get item price, if the item is on sale, return the price times the sale amount or just return the price. But like I have this function in here that's just item on sale that just checks whether or not if the item is on sale. In this instance, the idea of whether or not an item on sale is literally just a single attribute within that hash. So it's like I can literally just go product on sale equals equals true. So like the idea of a function checking whether or not an item is on sale is just like overly complicated in this context. It's just adding extra tooling and adding context that's not needed because the context is really clear. So basically, if you've gone down the path of splitting things into tons and tons of functions everywhere, sometimes you can realize your function is just like returning true or returning a single check on a single attribute. And sometimes it's nice to just put that back in line, especially when you're creating local variables to store that stuff for a second. Like if function if the function of item on sale returns true, store that in the is on sale local variable. Now check against the is on sale local variable. When like, in reality, you could have just checked against the original attribute under the hood and it would have just made it a little bit cleaner. So it's this, the reason I put this one here is to just talk about the balance for a second between splitting things up into their own functions or methods or allowing something to be checked in line and what that looks like, especially when it can have this implicit return. And then you can just use that value within the function you're using, which sometimes is really nice to do. So I wondered for, J for you, JP, like where do you find yourself kind of pulling something out of a function back in line, vice versa? Like how do you find this balance of an inline function versus, you know, splitting it up into discrete functions? Yeah. Sometimes I think for me, it's, it's a question of like, why are these two things separated? Sometimes you'll have data that it just feels right to to just all be together. And sometimes, you know, sometimes we just have this um, this this habit to reach for breaking something out. But sometimes when you're in in the actual while you're coding or while you're developing something, sometimes having that can be be painful. Um, so I feel like a lot of the times when I do reach for something like a like inlining my function or inlining a variable, it's so that I can get a better understanding of of the current scope of what a function's doing. So you know, this is not to say that like this is the final form, but you know, I think it's a good tool to understand how things are glued together, and and maybe it is the final form. 
The cool thing about all of these different types of refactors, like inline function, inline variable, inline inline class, I think might even be one of them, is that they have a counterpart, right? So instead of inline function, I think the counterpart to that is extract function. And I think the counterpart to inline variable is extract variable. And so I think what you have to keep in mind is that these are just different tools to move code around so that you can have a better understanding of things. And in fact, sometimes when, I don't know, sometimes I do find myself going down this like path of just inlining everything back into its function and like taking out all of the abstra- extracted parts. And I feel like that sometimes helps you get a better abstraction because sometimes, you know, people touch code many different times. And so you might have a function that has all these different abstractions and you and you might find that there's a bug, right? And so when you're debugging, sometimes it's nice to pull things back into it and inline different function returns and the different variables. Because I remember when I was refactoring that like multi-slider thing that we talked about a couple episodes yeah. ago, that was basically my path forward to understanding how that thing worked and how I can, you know, remove code and and fix different bugs that this like open source library had. And once I was able to inline all of the functions and all of the variables variables back into like one ginormous function, I was able to see like a bigger, like the the big picture and then make my own abstractions where I was like, okay, actually Mm -hmm. it was weird that, you know, this variable and this function were extracted, but like those should actually be grouped together. And so then you can make your own abstractions and be like, okay, so this data belongs like in a chunk and then this data belongs in a chunk. And then I could like extract functions out of that. And I think, um, that wouldn't have been possible unless I was able to inline things first. Right. It's almost like things are all spread apart out of the table. It's like, let's just get it all together first. And then we can kind of start to see which parts are common once it's like all in the same bucket again. I've definitely done that, especially in JavaScript, which is like, what are all these different functions doing? And just kind of getting it back all in line as a refactoring tool and then start splitting out what makes sense and what we can abstract. Because sometimes when there is like there's a lot of logic going on within functions. It's hard to see that they're so similar or related when they're in their own function. So sometimes the step to getting them refactored in a better way is to bring them together. And I think sometimes that those refactors that are stayed in line actually stay in line. And you realize that that's actually the best place for it. So it's really, it's, it's hard in software because so many times the answer is just, it depends. And so much of this is your gut and your context and what you're currently doing. So I think it's important to always consider the opposite. However, okay, so here's the question of the day though. Between extract function and inline function, like this is a spectrum here, where are where do you tend to lean more? Extracting functions or inlining functions on that spectrum? I don't know. I think I I think I actually tend to lean towards extracting functions because mm-hmm. sometimes too. sometimes things get like just too big mm-hmm. and and the benefit of being able to extract a function is that you can name it really really well and then just like you don't have to care what what the thing actually does. You can just read the name and be like, "Oh, okay, it's doing this this very explicit thing." Yeah. So I think I tend to lean towards there, but like you said, it just really depends, right? And sure. to me, and to me, these are just all tools. And I think this is especially useful as a tool when you're touching, you know, when when you're collaborating with, you know, four or five other developers on a team. And let's say you touch a piece of code like three months ago and then never touch it again. And then, and then the next time someone else touches it, you know, 
four other people on a different team have touched that same code and they've made their own abstractions and they've done their own things. And, you know, they, they maybe thought it was helpful to like extract another function. And so I think that code gets into a state where you have to both extract an inline functions just to piece things back together. You can piece things back together just so you can extract them back apart. <laughs> totally. Makes perfect sense. Awesome. So those are our refactoring tips for this week. Do you have any picks for this week, JP? I guess other than than floating and meditating <laughs> floating. and self-care. <laughs> uh, not really. I saw a tweet that was um, about this library called HTTP, HTTPI, H-T-T-P-I-E, which is basically <laughs> a command line tool that is like a wrapper or an abstraction around curling. Oh, that's cool. So I thought that was kind of cool. I, I I haven't looked at it other than like the the couple gifs on the on the readme. So I I can't really speak to too much to it, but I thought it looked pretty cool. You misspoke there. You you said gif. I th- I think you mean gif. <laughs> cool, nice pick. So HTTP. I I have to check that out. That looks interesting. But yeah, I it is couched in like we haven't really played with this thing very much beyond checking it out a bit. Uh, I've got a couple picks actually. So I leave tomorrow on a give or take 500 mile bike ride. It's like a eight day bike ride from San Francisco to LA. I'm super excited, but I found a couple little things that I've been using kind of in my bike riding training and like getting going. Cause I've done a couple test rides with all my gear. So yeah, it's called bike packing. I'm packing everything on my bike. So it's like almost like, and I'm camping along the way. So I've got my tent and all this stuff, but there was two things that I thought the audience would dig. The first one is the ultimate phone mount for a bike or motorcycle. This thing is awesome. It's unfortunate that you have to have a case on your phone specific to it, but it's called a quad lock. And the way that it mounts with like, not like the, some of these things have like weird, like rubber nets and like stretchy things and like don't really securely hold it. This thing holds it so well. Like I've actually fallen on my bike with my phone mounted. It didn't go anywhere. And it's really easy to get on and off. Like I like to take a lot of pictures, like, and I don't want to like have to deal with a big like rubber condom on my phone to like <laughs> take pictures. And so it's like, it's secure, it's safe and like it's easy to pull on and off. So the quad lock phone mount is one thing that I found that's been like this awesome little tech gadget specifically for biking or motorcycle riding that's been really great. Uh, They have car ones too, but I'm not that kind of a guy. The second one that has like been totally a game changer and I didn't realize how useful it would be outside of even my biking. I forgot which actual one, but it's one of the really big anchor USB-C battery packs, but it's big enough to charge my laptop. It's like my 13 inch MacBook Pro. So it's a USB-C MacBook Pro, USB-C anchor one. You have to be sure you get one with enough wattage. I think at the minimum for the 13 inch is like 35 watts or whatever. Otherwise you can damage your battery. But the idea of being able to have like three full laptop cycles in my bag and be able to be off grid totally for like 12 hours has been 12 hours plus. And like using Sketch, using Chrome, using dev tools, it's so nice to not have to worry or think about battery life. And like this other side thing is those stupid MacBook Pro charging bricks are so expensive. And so instead of buying a second MacBook Pro charging brick, I would actually recommend you buy one of these because it's the same price and then you get the added benefit of being able to actually charge your machine a full cycle. So like in your like go bag, if you're kind of like me, I like to work out in coffee shops and work out in the mountains or work wherever. If you're like me, instead of investing in a second charge brick for those on the go times, like invest in one of these backup batteries because you can use it like a charge brick if you 
you want, but then you also get the benefit of just being able to be totally offline, which is so cool. So I would just recommend that. I think the one I have is the Anchor PD something USB-C, blah, blah, blah. I'll put the link to the exact one I have, but I'm not like saying like, this is the one to buy, but do your research and like in general, it's a very nice tool to have and kind of your tech gadgetry kit uh, for sure. It's like one of these like legit battery backups is awesome. Cool. Yeah, that's definitely something on my like to buy list. It's like one of those bricks where I don't like need to plug into a wall or like exactly just just have a backup battery for my for my laptop yeah. charge. Well, thanks so much for listening. We will see you guys in a week or so. And uh, if you want to learn more about the show, reach out to us. You can go to iterationpodcast.com. And there you can get to our Twitters and emails and other stuff there. We love to hear from you guys. Thanks so much for listening. See you next episode. All right. Peace. Peace.